1: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are going to have a guest that would have knocked your Aunt Connie's socks off. But uh, the war in Iran kind of diverted this particular guest. And uh, we can take that as a hint, if you will, about who it was going to be. We hope to get him on in the next couple of weeks. Uh, an amazing person whose own political history has been very, uh, shall we say, shaped by the history of sports in this country. Uh, But I did want to get back to you anyway because it's a new year, it's 2020, big news since last we spoke, most notably the passing of David Stern. I also wanted to look back on the year that was because I think 2019 was a very special year at the intersection of sports and politics, so I want to run through that with everybody because in this media culture, we can forget things that happened last week. We're like cats following a laser pointer, but if you actually think back to everything that's happened since January, it's actually quite remarkable. So, there, we're going to take a quick break right now, but when we come back, it's just a musical interlude. That's all we're going to do, just to wet the palate. And when we come back, I'm going to give you my thoughts about the late NBA commissioner, David Stern. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. I wanted to give a few words about the towering and complicated legacy of David Stern. Okay, look, over the past year, I've been teaching a class called the History of Sports in the United States at Montgomery College. Now, when we get to the 1980s, I always do a section about the explosive growth of the NBA, and I show a slide of Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, and David Stern. I asked the class, can you name all four people on the screen, and invariably they can name Magic, Bird, and Jordan, but Stern's face has been unrecognized. Now by the time we're done with the unit, they understand that David Stern influenced the game more than anyone who didn't wear shorts. That's just a fact. And now that the longtime NBA commissioner has passed away at age 77, we gotta understand his legacy. When Stern became commissioner in 1984, the league was just five years removed from having the finals shown on tape delay. I can't even imagine that. In other words, people would watch their Charlie's Angels, people would watch their Knott's Landing or whatever the hell was on in 1979, and then boom, they would turn into the NBA Finals at like 11 o'clock. Stern understood before anybody else that the NBA would only go as far as its players, and he relentlessly marketed the new generation, turning them into icons. He also wasn't shy about integrating, or some would say exploiting, a new 1980s musical form called hip hop into the marketing of the league. In other words, he used black culture to fast track the NBA's growth, and it worked, bringing the ailing league to the cutting edge. NBA franchises went from being valued at between 10 and 20 million dollars to over a billion dollars today just to get in the conversation to buy one. The Golden State Warriors, for example, they've been listed at $3.5 billion, and 10 to 20000000 million, that'll get you a reserve power forward these days in the NBA. Now, Stern also saw the formation of the WNBA and diversity initiatives that branded the NBA as a progressive, forward-thinking institution. He handled Magic Johnson's 1991 announcement that he was HIV positive with incredible love and grace. But Stern, however, wasn't all sunshine and gingerbread. He was unapologetically ruthless when it came to both negotiating with the players union and protecting the league's image as a safe sport for white middle-class consumption. This dynamic ramped into high gear following the 1998-1999 players lockout. Stern won the battle against the union after canceling almost half the season. He proceeded to project himself as a king of the sport, biting, sarcastic, and more brazen about enforcing his will on the players. This was often executed in a ham-handed, patronizing manner, utterly insensitive to how a majority black league would perceive his directives. The 2004 Malice in the Palace, the fight between members of the Indiana Pacers and white fans of the Detroit Pistons, only stirred up more of Stern's fears that the league was pushing away white audiences. The brawl made Stern reactive, and even one might say, reactionary. It was Stern who then instituted the much-despised dress code in 2005, where players were monitored and subject to fines based upon what they wore when not on the court. He raised the age limit for when players could enter the league, preventing 18-year-olds from entering out of high school, having to wait until they were 20 to make a living. This has been amended to one year out of high school, but originally it was 20 years old. As NBA player Jermaine O'Neal, who came straight from high school, said at the time, As a black guy, you kind of think that's the reason why this is coming up. You don't hear about it in baseball or hockey. To say you have to be 20, 21 to get in the league, it's unconstitutional. If I can go to the U.S. Army and fight the war at 18, why can't you play basketball for 48 minutes? David Stern also did nothing, at best when NBA rebels Craig Hodges and Mahmoud abdul rauf were driven out of the sport for acts of political resistance. This is all part of his legacy. The aforementioned 1998-1999 players' lockout also pushed Stern much closer to NBA ownership, with deleterious results. For reasons that are still unknown, Stern never moved to push then-Los Angeles Clippers owner Donald Sterling off his perch and force him to sell his team. Sterling's bigotry, both as a franchise owner and in his private business affairs as a slumlord, were an open secret, yet Stern never sought handling this as a priority. Sterling's racism, of course, burst out into the open in 2014, the year conveniently that Adam Silver took over as commissioner. Silver acted decisively, partly to stem a player's revolt, and forced Sterling to sell his precious team. Then there was the close relationship between David Stern and then-Seattle Supersonics owner Clay Bennett. Of course, the Sonics are no more. Stern facilitated their move to Oklahoma City because the people of Seattle refused to vote for a new publicly-funded arena. Stern was also never shy about rubbing Seattle's nose in the move, as if he was warning other fan bases to not get between the league and their tax dollars. It was an altogether punitive and ugly response towards a fan base that had loyally supported the Sonics for 40 years. As the loving remembrances of Stern come cascading downwards from establishment media, the people of Seattle must be remembered, their love of NBA basketball torn apart because Clay Bennett and David Stern wanted a few hundred million dollars more. I will continue to teach about David Stern and his legacy. He should be studied and remembered by anyone who cares about sports. And we need the perspectives of Adam Silver, Michael Jordan, former WNBA Commissioner Val Ackerman, and all the sports cable entities and broadcast agreements with the NBA. But we should also listen to Craig Hodges, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, the fans of Seattle, and everyone who is injured under the weight of his reign and the weight of his ego. That's what I have to say about David Stern. And... And Lord have mercy, I spent about 15 years trying to get an interview with David Stern to talk to him about some of these issues, particularly uh, the issues around Mahmoud Abdul Rauf and Craig Hodges. But that interview never happened. So there's that. We'll be back right after this. I want to talk to folks about the year that was. You may have had your fill of year retrospectives, decade retrospectives, but. The 2019 at the intersection of sports and politics is really too much for me to eschew. So we'll be back right after this with a quick word from The Nation magazine. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. Let's talk about the year that was. Look, pondering this past year on the edge of sports, the easiest possible decision is figuring out who our Sports Person of the Year is. I rarely agree with Sports Illustrated's decision on these matters, or the hollowed-out husk of what was once Sports Illustrated, whatever you want to call it, but this year they named the only possible choice, Megan Rapinoe. It's been remarkable for me to see Rapinoe's ascension from a little-known soccer player with great, albeit ignored, politics to an international icon in a few short years. It has to be noted, and Rapino would be the first to say, that attention first came her way when she knelt in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick in 2016. But since then, she has become a frontline leader for social justice in her own right, in particular taking up the issue of equal pay for women and turning it into a demand that extended far beyond the soccer field. She and her team, on the road to their thrilling World Cup triumph, became a social movement that happened to play soccer. They collectively with Rapino at the front, popularized the question of economic justice for women to the point where their throngs of fans were chanting equal pay as much as they were chanting USA. Along the way, with every garland of glory, she has made political speeches speaking out for LGBTQ gender, racial, and economic justice, all while under the seething eye of the orange smear in the White House, who is practically rooting for this World Cup team to fail. Oh, and by the way, she did all this while dominating on the field, picking up every award along the way. But Rapino is not the only story of 2019. Not even close. The weak-kneed reactionaries who are already proclaiming the end of the ascension of political athletes simply haven't been paying attention. Jocks who are using their platform to actually say something about the world aren't going anywhere, even in the face of the army of Trumpian white nationalists poised to pounce upon them. There was NBA vet Kyle Korver writing a remarkable viral essay in April about whiteness and wrestling with how to be an effective ally. There were the Boston Red Sox players of color, including their manager Alex Cora last May, refusing to go to the White House in open solidarity with the people of Puerto Rico. There was soccer player Alejandro Bedoya in August speaking out on the field for gun control after the massacres in El Paso and Dayton. There was NFL player Kenny Stills, also in August, calling out his own then-boss, Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, for his hypocrisy in calling for racial healing while raising millions for Trump. There was the California victory in September in the battle by college athletes to control their name, image, and likeness. And at last loosening the stranglehold that the NCAA has on their rights. They were the Mississippi basketball players. Mississippi! kneeling during the anthem in protest of white supremacist groups rallying in Oxford against their right to play. There were the trans athletes refusing to be silenced and put on the bench despite an organized backlash. More recently, and I haven't even had the chance to write about this in depth, soccer star Masuto Seal has spoken out in solidarity with the viciously oppressed Muslim Uyghur minority in China. And, of course, there is Colin Kaepernick, still unbreakable, still stubbornly himself, showing up to his hastily called clown show of an NFL tryout wearing a Kunta Kinte shirt, wanting back in the league but refusing to do it on their terms, refusing to be broken. And one more I want to throw out there. There was Maya Moore, arguably the greatest women's basketball player to ever live, uh, actually taking the year off from playing in the WNBA so she could concentrate on fighting for criminal justice reform. A remarkable step, never before done by somebody in the prime, of their athletic career. The sports world has, in my mind, strongly reflected the broader political scene. Just as 2019 must be remembered not only as a time of authoritarian ascendancy, but also for the mammoth protests against austerity and for democracy across the world, this year the backlash and efforts to silence athletes was met by an electric, albeit underreported, resistance. And here we get into the most disturbing legacy of 2019 the ability to amplify these voices suffered greatly with the death of the website Deadspin, the aforementioned gutting of Sports Illustrated, and the broader crisis in newspapers around the country. So consider this a call to arms to young journalists and prospective sports writers across the country whose horizons extend far beyond the playing field. You are needed now more than ever. The future is murky. Employment prospects are ailing. The fight is ongoing. It must be chronicled and remembered, or risk being lost in the hot air. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, hey, now's the time of the show where we do the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award is actually a throwback award. I'm not doing something in the present tense. I want this to be called out there for everybody. Everybody horrified by what the United States is doing right now. Uh, In Iraq and to the people of Iran Illegal assassinations, bombings And uh, I mean just an altogether horror show Which could spark a much much broader regional if not global war I want to do a just stand up to all the athletes uh, From the 2003 to 2007 era Who I think have largely been forgotten Who stood up against the war in Iraq People like Adelius Thomas in the NFL uh, Carlos Delgado in Major League Baseball Etan Thomas, Steve Nash, Josh Howard, Nick Van Exel, and everybody who spoke out against the war in Iraq. You know, these are stories that are not well known. Also, a shout out to Scott Fujita, who played in the NFL, was on the Super Bowl champion New Orleans Saints, and connected his own history of his step-grandparents who were interned uh, during the presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, there are Japanese descent, Japanese American people who were actually put in internment camps, and connecting that to the treatment of Arabs and Muslims in this country—that was uh, some serious stuff that was going on at that time. And just because it's been underreported and underdiscussed doesn't mean it should be forgotten. And hopefully, they can provide inspiration for a new generation of athletes who can stand up and help us slow the skids to war. The just sit your ass down award
0: Sit ass damn
1: Goes to the organizers of the college football championship game That's the game between LSU and Clemson That's taking place on January 13th Who said, hey, it's great uh, White House, send Donald Trump Yes, Donald Trump will be there at that game I think the organizers of this game Should have told Donald Trump to stay as far away as possible This is using football as a foghorn for war It's disgusting one wonders if uh, the, the fans who are there in New Orleans for this game um, are going to be subject to some sort of penalty, students having their tickets taken away, like is what happens previously when Donald Trump uh, went to a college football game between Alabama and LSU. Uh, this is all far for the course. I mean, Donald Trump, I think he's still smarting from getting booed out of Washington National Stadium, booed out of an MMA event, And basically booed anywhere he goes that isn't a carefully manicured crowd. Uh, He's going to this college football game in the South, hoping for a warm reception by hook or by crook. Here's hoping people boo. Here's hoping people turn their backs to him. Here's hoping people throw up at the sight of this guy. I mean, I'm so disgusted. With what's taking place in this country right now, that you're probably gonna hear me talk more about this in the coming year. And I think a lot of our guests who will still talk about the intersection of sports and politics are gonna come more from this political world uh, so we can connect uh, the fight in 2020 uh, to the world of athletics. One last thing Kaepernick Watch. Um, I want to throw out there Colin Kaepernick um, put out his Nike shoes. This is always a contradictory view in my opinion uh, because you know Nike has its own problems with its labor practices, uh, but Nike's also the people who are actually not only offering Colin Kaepernick employment at a time when the NFL isn't, but you know they're giving a lot of the proceeds from these sneakers to social justice organizations. A lot of shoe stores, sneaker shops, which is not exactly what we would associate. With uh, the push for progressive politics in this country, they're giving away the profits from selling Kaepernick's shoes uh, to social justice organizations. And if you've seen the shoe, uh, on the sole of the left shoe is the date where Kaepernick started kneeling. And there's a drawing of Kaepernick's face uh, on the back heel of each shoe. They're black and white, and they were bought up immediately. Once again, which shows that if the NFL had actually signed Colin Kaepernick, the idea that he would have somehow hurt the business is absolutely ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you to everybody for tuning in here in 2020. We're going to have a great year on the Edge of Sports podcast for everybody who wants to hear back episodes of the show, you know we're available on iTunes. Just go through the list. We did some amazing interviews in 1919. I can't believe I just said that. We did some amazing interviews in 2019. Please check them out. And for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.